Good morning. morning. And a couple of announcements before we have prayer. Just want to um, want to let you know my wife's mother passed this week. Uh, Elsie Lafave, who was wife to Pastor Lafave, who pastored the uh, first church here for twenty years and or so, somewhere around there. And uh, memorial services will be held sometime. It's not scheduled yet. I don't know when. But um, keep uh, the family and her, her family in, in your prayers. Nothing you really need to do other than just be aware and, uh, and keep Ralph, her husband, uh, in your prayers. Gracious Father in heaven, we, we are so thankful for your love. And as, as we consider the, the sadness and the grief of lost loved ones, we look around this world and, and we recognize that things are coming to a conclusion. And we are longing for that day when we... And we lift up our heads and, and see you coming because redemption is coming and we'll be with our loved ones again. And we pray that, that to the degree we have a role to play to hasten the day, that you will enable us and enlighten us, that we can share this message to those who are open to receive it, that hearts can be changed and you will return soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We're going to be doing lesson uh, number two, Winsome Witness, the Power of Personal Testimony in the Making Friends for God uh, quarterly. But I received the email yesterday morning says, uh, I want to thank you for the work you are doing in revealing God's love through your teachings. I recently shared your blog, Dinah, A Lesson in Satan's Tactics for Today, with my mother in Ghana. We have had a few discussions about how understanding God's love can transform hearts. I'm actually overseas for my studies, so my only medium I can reach my family is by calling them online or sending them an article. My mother called me with tears in her voice. As a good Seventh-day Adventist, she didn't know how Satan gets access to us even when we feel we are right with God. She came face-to-face with her inner self as someone who isn't easily forgiving and had a little knowledge of the fact that it was one of Satan's working principles to sow a seed of pain and resentment just so we will be like him. She told me that she was having problems with the tenant and has always prayed for God to sack this tenant from her house. Little did she know that she was start she started harboring some hate in her heart against this tenant. After reading the article, she now prays that the Lord will help her love this tenant more. Due to the positive impact of the article, she told me that she printed it out and, and have shared copies uh, with friends and family. Today, whenever she calls someone on the phone, she cannot keep quiet about this message. My heart is filled with so much joy that I can share with her the truth that is in Christ concerning his love. God bless your ministry. I know there are frictions with, uh, from within and without trying to prevent this message from being preached, but God is still working on minds and hearts, and my family is one of them. So after reading this, I thought maybe I should we'll share a psalm with you again today. And this is Psalms 32, out of the, uh, the remedy of the Lord in Psalm. Happy are those whose wicked minds are restored to perfect purity, whose selfishness is eradicated. Happy is the person whose infected heart the Lord transforms to perfection, in whose mind there is no deceit. When I held on to my guilt and shame, refusing to talk to God, I stressed myself and my body decayed because every day I screamed, no, denying the truth. But day and night, your healing hand pressed firmly upon me. My resistance evaporated like water in the summer heat. Then I admitted my sin sickness to you and did not hide my character deformity. I said, I will confess my selfishness to the Lord. 
and you healed me and freed me from guilt. Therefore, let all the faithful ask you for the same healing while healing is still possible. Then when the guilt, shame, and regret of life come flooding in, the faithful will not drown in them. You are my safe harbor. You protect me from the storms of life and turn my life into a song of deliverance. The Lord says, I will teach you my methods and how to live in harmony with my designs. I will guide you and watch over you. Don't be like the unthinking horse or mule that do not reason or understand and must be forced by bit and bridle to follow the simplest instructions. Many are the sufferings of those who defy your designs, but those who trust the Lord are healed by his never-failing love. Celebrate God's goodness and be happy, you spiritually healthy. Sing for joy, all you with hearts like God's. And then I received this email this week. The Sabbath school lessons have been so great, my wife says each time I have to listen to this again, and we do. I have used the lessons when I teach our Sabbath school class, and we have been able to see the growth and understanding of class members. The blogs on current events are courageous and right on, so thank you for that also. These are truly difficult times and such a major th- such a major change from what I lived in the 1950s. When I read of the statements in the Great Controversy, I thought, how can this be? This is the land of the free and the home of the brave. We have lost so much freedom and so fast. Amen. Tim, I am amazed over and over at all you do and how you've been inspired to teach us so clearly of God's love and design law concepts. Thanks again. So, for those who are not familiar with the reference made by this uh, listener to the great controversy, uh, I, I've got one little paragraph that kind of represents his concerns. But as I read this, I want you in your mind to substitute church with the church of, and put in the blank, liberalism, social justice, whatever. And substitute Sunday with political correctness and see what you get. This is Great Controversy 592. The dignitaries of church and state will unite to bribe. What's a bribe? Paying people to do something wrong. Paying people to stay home and not work. Two trillion dollars. Yeah. Will unite to bribe, persuade, or compel all classes to honor, honor, this says the Sunday but it could be the political correct action that we need to take. The lack of divine authority will be supplied by oppressive enactments. Political corruption is destroying love of justice and regard for truth. And even in free America, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor, (laughs) will yield to popular demand for enforcing law. Wow. Liberty of conscience which has cost so great a sacrifice, will no longer be respected. In the soon coming conflict, we shall see exemplified the prophet's words, the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with a remnant of her seed who hold to the commandments of God and, and uh, keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Do you see this process? Or can it only be... See, this also exposes people who are literalist, concrete thinkers. Do people understand principles and practices? Can you do the same corruption? Can, can you, can, if, if somebody says, beware of the person who commits murder with a gun, do you only watch for a gun? And we're not worried about a person who commits murder with a knife. That doesn't count. 
Or is it the process of getting murdered that's the problem, not the gun? The gun isn't the issue. It's the process of committing murder. See, Sunday isn't the issue. It's the process of coercing consciences and compelling compliance. That's the problem. Second paragraph reads, It is difficult to argue against personal experience. People may debate your theology or your interpretation of a text or even scoff at religion in general. But when an individual can say, I, I was once hopeless, but now have hope. I was filled with guilt, but now have peace. I was purposeless, but now have purpose. Even skeptics are impacted by the power of the gospel. I think it's true that when you tell people about how your life has been positively transformed by Christ, it has a positive impact. So it's, a, it's a powerful witness that people have a hard time to resist. But what about the idea that it's difficult to argue against personal experience? I think it's particularly true to the person who's had the experience. If, if they have an experience and you try to argue against their experience, you will have difficulty. It is not true, however, to negate or argue against someone's personal experience in your own understanding of reality. When you recognize that their experience is dangerous, fraudulent, destructive, false, erroneous, or we're simply not convinced, we can definitely argue against their experience, can't we? Let me give you some examples. One idea with fairly regularly in my practice is people who are convinced by their experience that marijuana helps them, helps their mental state, helps their psychiatric condition. Okay, I'm not talking about CBD oil. I'm talking about marijuana with THC. It's difficult to convince them that marijuana is not a good treatment for mental health conditions, and in fact, it's essentially universally proven that THC in marijuana is a neurotoxin that damages white matters, increases psychosis, increases uh, 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 brain damage, actually, mental health problems. They are basing their sense that it helps them on their feelings of wellness, and thus their feelings, how they feel, becomes the totality of their experience. They actually deny and lie to themselves about real experience because they don't include all the other elements of human experience, like how well they are functioning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that matters. Okay. How much they're achieving, how, how etc. That's not included. It's only how they feel is the totality of the experience. So it's a distortion when they're not including their overall brain health and what brain imaging might show about their own brain. Then when they search the Internet... They will find articles and blogs that seem to support their conclusion that it's actually good for them. I will tell you that's propaganda and or anecdotal, talking about how they feel better. I feel better. I feel better. So how do I deal with their experience when I'm dealing with people like this? First thing is I point out very simply, well, if it's working so well, why are you here to see me? <laughs> and there's a contradiction right there right and then we start examining other evidences of their own history like their inability to maintain a job or they're having to drop out of school and their grades falling or they're uh, 29 still living in their parents basement and haven't achieved anything etc 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 Okay, we, we go through evidence. And then I will pull out on my computer brain scans that show scans, functional scans of people who use marijuana a lot and show the damage that's occurring in their brain. 
Ultimately, though, they have to decide. They have to make a choice. Do they want to get well, or do they want to continue to feel the way they're feeling? And I teach them about the laws of health. You cannot have health while violating the laws of health. You can't do it. You will undermine your health. Now, it might be minor. If you smoked one cigarette in your whole life, that one cigarette did not add health to you. But if it was the only cigarette you've ever smoked in your life, it was probably not measurable, the damage that was done. But it wasn't healthy. But if you persist in patterns that day in, day out violate the laws of health, you will undermine your health. You won't get better, you'll get worse. Within Christianity, this question, experience, how do you argue against experience? Do you, can you, can you argue against somebody, if somebody presents their experience to you, is it persuasive to you? That's what the, well, in Christianity, there's a long, great divide over those who do something they call speaking in tongues versus those who don't. And those who do have a powerful experience that those who don't consider to be fraudulent, either emotional hysteria or demonic. And those who do will never be persuaded out of their experience by those who don't. And those who don't are not persuaded by those who do. (laughs) So experience, just a, a powerful experience, doesn't seem to be persuasive always. How about this? The current craze in America about people claiming Well, that's my truth. You heard this? That's my truth. That's your truth. That's my truth. What they're saying is my experience overrides all other evidence. And they're actually, it's a very dangerous phenomenon because they're creating a falsehood. They're taking experience and they're relabeling an experience as truth. Experiences and truth are not the same thing. Now, it may be true that they had this experience. Okay? The fact they had the experience is true, okay? But what they think the experience means may not be true. And that's where people get confused. They can't differentiate that. Example, a person may experience incredible feelings of attraction to another, including convinced and feeling totally in love, and including saying, this is my one and only, the only one that's right for me. It's the one I'm with. And then six weeks later, they can't stand them. And it's the wrong person. And they know it. You, you all know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. But they had the experience. See, experience doesn't necessarily mean things are true. Another one, survivor's guilt. A person may survive a trauma, whether it's a war or a home fire or a natural disaster. And someone they love didn't survive the trauma. And the loss causes the person who survived to blame themselves for not saving the other, for being alive when the other's not, when they did nothing wrong at all. That's their experience. But it's not true that they're at fault. It's often very difficult to get these individuals to give up their guilt. Often very difficult. It's their truth. It's not true, though. Let's explore how experiences can deceive people and mislead. Here's one way. By substituting someone else's experience for your own. Here is a historic quote from one of the founders of the Adventist church describing events as she saw them more than 100 years ago. I think you will see that this is a human dynamic and a human process that human beings are still doing right now today. 
If we mistake the wisdom of man for the wisdom of God, we are led astray by the foolishness of man's wisdom. Here is the great danger of many in, and we could insert perhaps America. Many in America. This is happening with many right now in the social justice movement. Let me put it this way. Is there a difference between a just cause and just actions? Are those the same thing or are those different? A just cause or just actions? Are they the same? No. Satan tricks people by presenting them a just cause. This is a just cause. But then combining it with the unjust methods of the world as the solution. That's the foolishness of man's wisdom. Let's use man's law and man's government and man's methods. The foolishness of how humans do it. We'll get power over people. We'll pressure them. We'll coerce them. We'll, we'll fine them. We'll imprison them. If they don't comply, we will fix the problem because it's a just problem that needs fixing with unjust foolishness, the worldly methods. Understand this. In every human government, just look at history, folks. In every human government throughout the entire history of the world, some group has been treated unjustly. Sometimes it's based on race. Sometimes it's based on nationality. Sometimes it's based on religion. Sometimes it's based on politics, not joining the right party. Every human government has some group that gets treated unjustly. The movement going on in America right now is simply a grab for power to shift and treat who who gets treated unjustly. It's not about actually achieving true justice for people. It's a trap. Continue on with the quote. These people who exchange man's wisdom, God's wisdom for man's wisdom, they have not an experience for themselves. They have not been in the habit of prayerfully considering for themselves with, notice these words, unprejudiced, unbiased judgment, questions and subjects that are new and ever liable to arise. How many in our society today are taking the time to prayerfully consider for themselves with unprejudiced and unbiased judgment the questions regarding social justice? Or how many are accepting the views put forth by the media, the angry, the hurt, and following what others think? In my blog this week, I commented against... uh, In my blog this week, if you look on our Facebook page, many people commented against my blog without even reading the blog. They didn't read it. They just read the title and then reacted and, and criticized. Is that prayerfully thinking for themselves with unprejudiced bias? unbiased, unprejudiced. No. Our society and our church are in danger because people are being conditioned to react, to follow, but not to think, not to reason, not to weigh evidences with unbiased judgment through God's design law lenses. Continuing with the quote. They wait to see what others will think. If these dissent, that is all that is needed to convince them that the subject under consideration is of no account whatever. How many people are doing this, waiting for the latest post-tweet, blog, statement from party leader or movement leader to tell them which direction they should go. Continuing with the quote. Although this class is large, it does not change the fact that 
they are inexperienced and weak-minded through long yielding to the enemy and will always be as sickly as babes, walking by others' light, living on others' experience, feeling as others feel, and acting as others act. Understand what's just described here. This is a mob. (laughs) This is a mob. A mob mentality in which person's individuality is submerged in the group and thinks what the group thinks, acts the way the group acts, does what the group says. Continuing with the quote. They act as though they had not an individuality. Their identity is submerged in others. They are merely shadows of those who they think are right. Unless these become sensible of their wavering character and correct it, they will all fail of everlasting life. This is profound stuff, guys. They will be unable to cope with the perils of the last day. They will not, they will possess no stamina to resist the devil, for they do not know that it is he. How many right now are being duped into fighting just causes with unjust methods? Historically, Adventists taught in the quote that I read that religious leaders will join hands with government to pass Sunday legislation. That's a historic teaching. But why would people do that? Why would leaders do that? It's because they think they are fighting for justice, for God's kingdom, for trying to make the world a better place, a more moral place. They have a just cause. Do you see that? But we recognize that those methods are unjust. What about if we substitute Sunday legislation with other legislation designed to pursue social justice? Could such laws be passed that cross the line of simple equal opportunity to coercion, using methods of the devil to promote a just cause? How many today have no stamina to resist the pull of it? Continuing with the quote, someone must be at their side to inform them whether a foe or friend is approaching. They are not spiritual, therefore spiritual things are not discerned. They are not wise in those things which relate to the kingdom of God. I see this happening right now. So many Christians don't seem to be able to differentiate between God's kingdom and the world's kingdom. Between God's justice and worldly justice. Between God's law, design protocols, and human law-imposed rules, they've accepted the wine of Babylon that God's law functions no different than human law, and the way you make justice is you pass laws and you enforce the laws. Therefore, it's just for, for people who want justice to take hold of government and pass laws and force those on people and then punish them if they won't obey. This is why Christians are going to be duped. They, they are not wise in the things of God's kingdom. Neither young nor older are excusable in trusting to another to have an experience for them. So, substituting someone else's experience for your own, letting someone else do your thinking for you, is one way that experience can deceive. Another way is accepting feelings as truth or reality. The example we just gave about the relationship would be an example of accepting truth as reality. Um, Here's another one. Not checking 
the experience that you have against testable laws, evidence, or reality. I was consulted some years ago to see a patient who had been a young man in his 20s who had type 1 diabetes and was admitted with diabetic ketoacidosis. That's when you don't take your insulin, your sugars go super high, and you get into very life-threatening condition from that. The doctor wanted me to assess him because he'd been a diabetic his whole life. He knew to take his insulin. He stopped doing it to see if he was suicidal, and this was his way to try to kill himself. Well, he was not suicidal. Then why did he stop taking his insulin? Because he went to a faith healer who publicly placed hands on him and healed him. He had a wonderful experience, felt euphoric, was overwhelmed by the Spirit, spoke in tongues, and was convinced by his experience that he had been healed. When I asked after the healing if he continued to monitor his blood sugars, he said, no, that would be a lack of faith. And if you don't have faith, you can't be healed. He had an experience, but he didn't want to actual evidence or truth or reason or thinking to challenge his experience. See, a person who loves God and loves God's kingdom would have done just the opposite of this. They might have also gone and had prayer in hands and been anointed and asked for healing. And if they believed they were healed, a person of faith, a true person of God's kingdom would have said, I'm going to start checking my blood sugars and I'm going to keep a log so I can show the evidence that I'm healed. The liar... The father of lies has to convince people to close their minds to truth and evidence and to live in a false imaginary world. Another way experience misleads is something called globalization. Globalization. Using a real experience from a specific situation and then applying it to all other examples or situations of a similar nature. For instance... Say, witnessing a miscarriage of justice. Say, a police officer abusing their power and hurting or even killing a suspect. I know something like this could happen in society. And then, and then globalizing that, that officer's misconduct to conclude all police officers are abusers and can't be trusted and police departments need to be defunded. Taking a real experience, globalizing it to all, Someone this week actually told me they had a conversation with their 18-year-old son who has, has this idea. He's been, because of uh, recent events, because of his social media that he follows, he has concluded that all police are corrupt and all police are untrustworthy and we need to defund them. That's his conclusion. How do you talk to a person like this? Well, I'm going to give you some stratagems. Okay? First, don't argue the specific event. Whatever the specific injustice that, that is the trigger, don't argue it. Give it to him. Give it to him. It was wrong. We agree. It's wrong. Just give it to him. Don't put your focus upon the actual globalization that they're focusing on. In other words, they're focusing on police. Don't argue about the police, at least not yet. What you want to do is you want to move the discussion away from the police to some other aspect that they can identify with to expose globalization, <laughs> to expo expose the cognitive distortion that they're doing to themselves. You must understand the problem here the person has is actually not with all police. The problem is with a false conclusion that they've come to because they've taken a specific event and they've applied it globally, thus they have a false conclusion. That's their problem. So how do you get there? In this particular case, I recommended that the parent talk to their 18-year-old their who was a video gamer and ask the 18-year-old, um, hey, are there any video gamers that you know about that ever cheat? 
Well, yeah. Does that mean all video gamers cheat? <laughs> Very simple. No, it doesn't mean that. And then I would say this. Then, then present the following to them. Imagine that you entered a video gaming contest in which the winner receives a $10,000 prize, and you win! When you go to get your prize, you discover someone has stolen your identity and has already taken the $10,000. Would you be okay with that? You know what the 18-year-old is going to say, right? No. I said, what would you like to happen after that? Well, I want them caught, and I want the $10,000. Who do you think is going to do that? <laughs> and no matter what they say at this point, it's only semantics. It's only labels. They, they might say, well, it'll be the rule enforcers, or they might say uh, it, it will be the right of fires, or it might be the, the gaming commission or the bank regulators. Uh, it doesn't matter what they say. They're talking about someone who is a law enforcer, which is police. You could give another example. Uh, you just graduated high school this year. You're 18. Uh, your parents buy you a, a brand new car. Two weeks later, it's stolen. What would you like to have happen? <laughs> would you like your car back? Well, who's going to do that? Who's going to chase down the thief? Hold them accountable. You really, you really want to do away with the police, do you? It's so easy to expose this stuff. You just have to give scenarios where they actually think. They've been so conditioned to just react. Yes. But if you have a whole segment of society that has that false understanding of something, then you have a pretty big problem on your hands. How are you going to change that whole segment of society? I guess I don't understand your question in regards to our personal responsibility. Um, it depends on your role and your relationship. In this particular case, it was a parent with their child. That's what I was talking about. I don't have a role with the society at large. I'm not in office. I don't have a role. I don't have an ability. I don't have a connection. So I don't have a place to go out and change society at large. The way the Christian method is, is we present truth and love and we leave people free. And one person at a time, we share with the people in our communities. And this is how the Christian world in the first century changed its society, the corrupt Roman government. So that would be the method. If you're asking about how does a, a human government do it, that's a different question. It can be a problem if a whole segment of society, with your example, wants to defund the police, for example. Yes, and so the, the segments that don't, you know, depending, uh, ultimately, the, the, you're asking society, I would try to educate them, but if they wanted to do it, leave them free. See what happens. I will tell you, I will tell you guys, it's all a fraud. It is a fraud. It's a fraud by the people who are promoting it, and they know it's a fraud. In these cities where they're actually doing it, any of these politicians that are trying to defund law enforcement, see what happens if you get that mob to go to their house, break in, and steal their stuff. They won't go, yes, this is great, we don't need any... They will have law enforcement out there faster than you can blink your eye, these same politicians that are doing this. They are liars and they're frauds, I'm just telling you. And if anybody doesn't believe me, test me on it. I'm not suggesting anybody do any crimes. <laughs> but, but I promise you, does anybody seriously believe that any of these leaders that are, that are wanting to... If, if somebody broke into their house, beat up their children, stole their property, they would not want law enforcement. Does anybody believe that? Nobody believes that. So what is it all about? Mind control. Well, what does it say about those leaders? That's what I'm saying. What is it all about? It's not about what they're saying it's about. It has a lot to do with fear. That's what they're trying to do. 
when they can get you afraid, they can then manipulate you, get you to give up more freedoms. So how do we challenge someone's personal testimony or experience that you believe may be leading them astray? Well, if they're not willing to have a dialogue, if they're in a rage, if they're having a temper tantrum, if they're screaming, if they're breaking things, if they're in a mob raging down the street, you cannot have any persuasion on them. So the first thing required to persuade somebody is they have to be willing to have a dialogue. If they're not willing to sit down and discuss things, and that's why Christ said you present the truth, you leave people free, but if they don't want the truth, shake the dust off your feet and move on to somebody who will. Don't cast your pearls before swine lest they turn and rend you asunder. So you have to discern there may be people out there that are completely hostile and corrupt and they have no interest in a better way. What's your responsibility? To, to have a confrontation and fight them? Not as Christians, it's not. I'm going to go on a diversion. Not in the notes. Go on a little side trail here. What about the use of force? Well, let me tell you about the use of force. If you want to just cut through all the mustard, cut through all the stuff that's going on out there, have clarity, all you have to do is think this way. Just pull it back into this frame and then apply it to the society. Parents dealing with a child or two who's having a raging temper outburst, breaking stuff all over their house. If you as a parent have that situation, do you want to take vengeance on your child? Do you? Do you want to harm your child? Do you want to inflict punishment on the child? Do you want to restrain the child, restore the child to calmness, Discipline, which comes from the root word disciple, meaning to teach and educate, but not punish, meaning punitive, uh, comes from the root word punitive, to take vengeance upon. Do you want to do that? And so when you look at society, if you have love in your heart as a human being, then there is a place for restraining power. Not punitive power, not vengeance not inflicting harm, simply restraining. And when you restrain the one, the child who's having the rage attack, you're not only protecting other children in the playground with them or in your home with them, you're protecting the child themselves. Do you remember the story of Desmond Doss? He tells the story about how in an adolescent he had a rage attack against his brother and almost killed his brother. And that is what tr- was the major trigger for him to become a conscientious objector. Never use violence again because he was so convicted and horrified that he could have been that much out of control. You see, if he would have done that, he would have had serious grief, guilt, shame, uh, uh, searing of his conscience. It would have been a horrible thing for him to go through. It destroys the one who behaves this way. If you love them, you want to inter- intercede for their best interest. So in society, when we see people doing this, there is a place for loving authorities to come in and restrain both for the innocent's sake and for the sake of those participating so they don't injure themselves even more. That's a righteous use of power. But it's never righteous to use what the human system calls justice. And the human system of justice is never about taking those people, restoring them to loving friendship and part of the family. It's about identifying the wrongdoers and locking them away somewhere and punishing them. So I got off onto the side. Yes. Well, I think you just described in a lot of words what Romans 13, 1 to 6 actually says. In that way. People take it and they yes. get 
confused, but the way you just described it, I think, is what the apostle... That's right. And so, so we have to make that distinction between human governments that simply restrain and keep order, but they can never change hearts. You can restrain your own child, but you can't make your child love you. You can't. And so no amount of external force or power, even if it's restraining power, can change a heart. But it can limit damage done by those out of control of themselves. Sunday's lesson focuses on the demoniac uh, that Christ cast out demons from, and they went into the pigs, and uh, Christ's instruction for him to go and witness in his hometown, uh, and the lesson asked, why did he do that? Why did he send him home to witness rather than keep him there and nurture him as one of his disciples? And the lesson points out several good reasons. One, the demoniac was well known in his region. Uh, He had a large Twitter following. Um, People would recognize him. And uh, the marked changes in him would stimulate interest in what he had to say. So, no, he was, he was known. He was popular. Um, uh, he, his healing would demonstrate the essence of the gospel, which is restoring people to godliness. So it, would, it would witness that. His healing would become a point of community interest that would spread, and people would tell people about, hey, you hear that, Moniac, and, and so forth. So it was a, a means of, so all these are good points. What about for the healed man himself, though? Was there a reason to send him for his sake? Think about the law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. This man's mind was just freed from demonic influences. What do we want to strengthen in him now? His spiritual. His mind in godliness. His mind in truth. His mind in trust and confidence in Christ. What will help that happen? Doing it. Telling the story. Sharing it with others, repeating it over again, telling it wide and far. It solidifies in him his victory in Christ. Whereas if he just stops, it fades into memories, opens himself back up to be demonically influenced again. So it was for his good, through the law of exertion, that he exercises his abilities in the application of truth and godly principles, which helps him grow in godliness. Now, it's very interesting. There's a quote from the Desire of Ages that describes this principle, and this principle works in both directions, good and bad. And this is uh, Desire of Ages 323. See what you think. The words are an indication of that which is in the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But words are more than an indication of character. They have power to react on character. Men are influenced by their own words often under the momentary impulse prompted by Satan. They give utterance to jealousy or evil surmising and express that which they do not really believe. But the expression reacts on the thoughts. They are deceived by their own words and come to believe that true which was spoken at Satan's instigation. Having once expressed an opinion or decision, they are often too proud to retract it and do and try to prove themselves in the right until they come to believe that they are. It is dangerous to utter words of doubt, dangerous to question and criticize divine light. The habit of careless, irreverent criticism reacts upon the character in fostering irreverence and unbelief. And uh, I have seen this. I have seen people who lie to themselves so much they come to believe the lie is true. Have you ever met people like this? Oh, yes. This this is the principle, the principle of of exertion, exercising something. It gets stronger in so doing. Okay, we're going to jump to Thursday's lesson, 
We didn't get them, but we're going to jump because there's interesting stuff regarding what's happening in society today. The lesson is about Paul's personal testimony before Agrippa and giving his conversion testimony. And the lesson points out that kindness opens hearts, whereas abrasiveness closes them. What enables us to be kind to the unkind? When you see injustice in society, how do you, what enables you to respond with kindness and patience? Do you think the people that saw injustice in Minneapolis are responding with kindness? Are they, are they having the bracelets, WWJD? What would Jesus do? Do we struggle when wrong happens? I'm talking real wrong here, folks. Do we struggle when wrong happens with temptations to retaliate? I do. I don't know about you. I do. Is that desire to retaliate, to hurt the wrongdoer, coming from God? Online friend Keith Johnson has worked in prison ministries for years and developed four questions I've shared once in the past. It's also in my book, The God-Shaped Heart, to help people understand, help inmates understand God's justice. Take a moment. We're going to read these to you and, and let you think about them. What if I told you that your youngest child was murdered? Think that through. Get your heart there. Your youngest child was murdered. Would you want mercy or justice for the perpetrator? What if I told you the murderer was your oldest child? Would you want mercy or justice for the perpetrator? You see... That, that pausing right there. Every human being is one of God's children. People don't get this. Next question. What if I told you you are guilty for the murder of the only begotten Son of God? Do you want mercy or justice for the perpetrator? And then he gives this little scenario. What if I told you that you had a daughter, your only daughter, the apple of your eye, who has never given you a moment's grief, but tonight, as her father, you happen to have the uh, your tux hanging in the closet because tomorrow you are scheduled to walk your daughter down the aisle to give her away to someone you, that you approve. If you're the mother, you have, uh, have been planning and preparing, uh, and you have a beautiful dress to wear tomorrow. But tonight your daughter is at a bachelorette party with some peers, and they talk her into having one more for the road. The first time she's ever really drank in her life. But it turned into three, four, five, six, seven. Later on her way home, she wipes out a school bus full of children on their way to camp. Everybody aboard the bus dies in a fiery inferno, but your daughter survives. Do you want mercy or justice for your daughter? And what of those who are related to the victims on the bus? What do they want? We talk about justice all the time. But I'm telling you, the world is corrupt with human justice concepts. It's always about punishing the wrongdoer, never about making friends or healing the one who was wrong. Now, let me tell you, how many of you have heard in the last few weeks calls for justice for the officer that killed George Floyd? How many of you have, called, have heard in the last few weeks people interested in that officer's salvation? in that officer's redemption. How many, how many of you heard calls for that? For his forgiveness, for his restoration to godliness, if there is a problem in the heart there. I don't know his heart, that's why I say that. Should we be interested in the officer's salvation? What happens when a, when a sinner experiences grace? Versus what happens when they experience condemnation. 
Which is more likely to lead the sinner to repentance? What is our responsibility as Christians? Seriously, folks. If we're going to be like Christ, shouldn't we act like the Amish community after their little girls were killed by the gunmen? Do you remember how they responded? They forgave him and helped his family. That's Christianity in action. This other thing that is infecting the church, that we need to get a hold of the state and we need to pass laws to inflict punishment, it is a trap of the devil. It's a process, you know, that each of us as Christians have to go through. I can't all of a sudden at times see an injustice like that and say, oh, I forgive you. I mean, I want to grow to that point to be able to do that, but being abused from the age of 4 to 16, I ran away from home. It, it took a process. Yes, it does. Of, of, you know, I went through rage, anger, and all of that, all that process, but God got me through to the end to where I was able to look at the abuser and actually forgive him and be concerned for his soul and know that there must be something in his life that happened in his life too to where he would do something like that to me. So it's it's that process. And But God does get us to that point. You know, if we're following on to know him and come closer to him, he does bring us to that point to be able to love when before I couldn't love. And this is the point. Bible justice turns enemies into friends, yeah. turns the untrustworthy into the trustworthy turns the abuser into the protector, turns the selfish into the selfless. This is what Bible justice does. It actually fixes the corruption in heart. Because the Bible justice, I will put my law in your heart and mind. I'll take out the heart of stone and put in a tender, compassionate heart. You will be reborn and recreated. I'll restore righteousness in you. This is doing what's right. Doing the right thing is removing the evil and putting in perfection of Christ. That's Bible justice. This is not what you hear. But that's not what we're conditioned from, from the inception of the television program to novels. We're not conditioned to use that method. We want to use the same methods that the perpetrator used that inflicted the punishment on the individual. And then the guy on the white horse and the white hat comes in and we're okay with him using the same methods to inflict the punishment on the country. And I want to remind us again, I say it over and over again, the reason Christians so quickly jump on that is because they've already assumed a false premise. And the false premise is God's kingdom in heaven works like our kingdoms. He made up rules. His rules are just more perfect than our rules, but they're still made up rules like our rules. And then he oversees them with a perfect scrutiny, so he always knows every detail. And then he enforces them like we enforce them, and he uses power to punish wrongdoers. This whole corrupt system has been projected onto God when the Roman church accepted that God's law works like human law. Rather than teaching that God is the creator, his laws are the laws upon which reality are built, not just the physical laws like physics and gravity and laws of health, but the moral laws. They're how we were designed to work. 
And this is why the final message of mercy in Revelation 14 is to call people back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. Reject this imperial dictator God that has infected Christianity and sets us up so easily to accept the systems of the world and embrace the creator God whose kingdom is not of this world. And the pushback we're getting from my blogs, I will tell you, from Christians, you can see it, they all argue the human law model. They all argue that model. Yes? During Jesus' time, the government, the empire, was very corrupt, Yep. very oppressive, all kind of injustices. It was all around Jesus. It was all around everyone. How much time did Jesus spend working on social injustice? Yeah, we read a, yeah beautiful. That's exactly right. We read a quote from Sarah just last week where she actually went on and said the exact same thing. He spent no time for conforming civic governments because, she said, because the remedy has to reach hearts, and trying to change governments does not reach hearts. Exactly correct. If we look at Monday's lesson, it's about proclaiming the risen Savior, about witnessing Christ, the risen Christ, witnessing the risen Christ. How do you do that? Anyone want to share uh, what they found to be effective? The lesson uh, gives this suggestion of, uh, actually what they say in the entire day's lesson, is simply reviewing the, the New Testament narrative of the historical references to the women going to the tomb and finding it empty, and the people validating and witnessing his... his, his. So that's what they're using as the... And I'm going to suggest, I'm going to ask the question, how effective will that be for people who don't believe in Scripture? I mean, I don't think it has much impact, honestly. Now, if people believe in the Old Testament Scripture, but don't believe in the New Testament, well, you could potentially use it to go through the prophecies pointing to the Messiah and how they were fulfilled in Christ. That might have some traction, perhaps. But simply recounting the the New Testament accounts of his rising from the dead, I, I think it's not an effective witness to people who don't have some interest in believing in him already. So what other way do we witness? And this is out of the Desire of Ages. And um, in fact, I'm not going to read it. I'll just tell you basically what it says. It talks about the transformed life. The person who was an addict who is now clean. The person who was a, uh, a spouse abuser who is now a protector. In other words, the, gen- the, the, the rough becoming gentle, the coarse becoming refined, the, the, cur- the person who had a foul word on their mouth in every sentence that now speaks only pure things. In other words, the life transformation of mean-spiritedness to kindness and grace and compassion and Christ-like character. It is the character transformation in people that is what's powerful. This is also how we should discriminate. Do you notice I said discriminate? (laughs) We should discriminate based on character. A person looking for a spouse should discriminate the dishonest, deceitful, cheating person from the honest, loyal, faithful person. They should make a distinction in their selection based on that. Don't you agree? If you're hiring someone for employment, you should discriminate based on the trustworthiness and the, uh, and the reliability of the person's character. But what's happening in society, it's all moving away from character and Ability to identity. It's a corruption. It's a lie. 
Character is what it's always about. What's the heart? And that transformation of character will make you a true witness for God's kingdom. So how do we apply this when we witness to other people, when we reach other people? Not only must we then have love, a new heart, where we have love for other people, and we want to go out and witness and reach other people, one way to do that is in service, in doing social justice. Not through legislation, but through ministry in the community. Helping people who need help. Ministering to those that are sick. Adopting the orphan without a family. In other words, social justice. Treating people equally because they're children of God. And then when we minister to people, it opens the door for them to receive. They want to, why do you care enough to help me? Where does that come from? Because I was once lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I want to share with you what changed me. So, this is out of Councils to the Church, 284. But in order to actually help people in your community, it requires that you have godly wisdom which means you must understand design law. If you don't understand design law, if it's all rules, then, then the rule is you have to give to people who don't have. If they don't have as much as you, then you have to give some to them because, because it's only fair if you've got more and they've got less that you give them some, and that's how you help people because they're without and you give them stuff because you've got. This is very primitive thinking. Listen to this out of councils of the church. There are two classes of poor who have always been within our borders. Those who ruin themselves by their own independent course of action and continue in their transgression, and those who, for the truth's sake, have been brought into strained circumstances. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves, and then toward both of these classes, we should do the right thing under the guidance and counsel of sound wisdom. But before I even go on, it's perhaps suggesting that you treat them differently. You don't give them the same thing, depending on the circumstances. Could we, if we confuse the two classes, could we actually harm rather than help? Either leaving someone who needs help unhelped because we lump them together, or giving help to someone who shouldn't be helped because they need to help themselves, thus enabling and crippling. It requires wisdom. So let's keep on with the quote. There is no question in regards to the Lord's poor, those who find themselves in circumstances not because of persistent failure to fulfill their responsibilities. No, 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 regard to, uh, no question in regard to the Lord's poor. They are to be helped in every case where it is for their benefit. I mean, there's cases when it's not for their benefit? Interesting. That, that, that's a little hard for me. I gotta think now. I didn't want to think. I just wanted to church tell me a rule. I gotta donate this much. I filled my checkbox now. And I got my list checked off. And I'm good. And I'm righteous now. Cause I did what I was supposed to. Give, give, give so much percent to missions. And that, then I'm good, right? Tie 10%. Church this much expense. Uh, missions that much. I'm good, right? Oh, and I also pay my taxes. We'll get to that in a moment. Continue with the quote. God wants his people to reveal to a sinful world that he has not left them to perish. Special pain should be taken to help those for the, who for the true sake are cast out from their homes and are obliged to suffer. The poor among God's people must not be left without provision for their wants. Some may want, some way must be found whereby they may obtain a livelihood. 
Ooh, how do we help them? Give them a job. Get them back on their feet. <laughs> help them restore to self to independence, to autonomy, to self-recovery, to where they can provide for themselves. Now, there are times, we've had tornadoes here in this town. Homes have been ruined. People need a place to stay. They don't have the uh, resources necessary. But the helping them is not to then just put them permanently in government housing and send a monthly check. The help is to give them some housing while we give them a job, while we help repair their home so they can live independently again. Isn't that the goal? Some will need to be taught to work. Others who work hard and are taxed to the utmost of their ability to support their family will need special assistance. Perhaps a pay raise, perhaps a new job, perhaps a subsidy, perhaps low-cost housing. They're doing all they can in their power. They're not negligent. They need help too. Why should, We should take an interest in these cases and help them to secure employment. There should be a fund to aid the worthy poor. How many churches have an employment bureau set up to help the people in their community find employment? I've never heard of it. Interesting. Here's another one. Methods of helping the needy should be carefully and prayerfully considered. We are to seek God for wisdom, for he knows better than short-sighted mortals how to care for the creatures he has made. There are some who give indiscriminately to everyone who solicits their aid. In this they err. In trying to help the needy, we should be careful to give them the right kind of help. There are those who, when helped, will continue to make themselves special objects of need. They will be dependent as long as there is anything upon which to depend. When we give to the poor, we should consider, am I encouraging prodigality? Prodigality, the prodigal son. Prodigality, prodigal son, that's wastefulness. Failing to fulfill one's life. Am I, am I encouraging it by giving to let this person be negligent with their times and resources? Am I helping to or injuring them? No man, can, no man who can earn his own livelihood has a right to depend on others. Amen. Who can. Powerful stuff, folks. Powerful stuff. I love that she uses a term, worthy poor, at the end of that one quote. That implies that there are some unworthy poor. Yeah. Yeah, there are. That, no, exactly. Uh, the New Testament Thessalonians said those who won't work should not eat. Man will not work. And why is that the case, folks? What does God simply want people clothed, fed, and sheltered? Is that His goal? No, He wants to restore righteousness in the character. He wants to restore integrity. He wants to restore the image of God in man. And he designed us to work in Eden without sin. He gave them work to do because we're created in the image of our creator. And it builds us up. It gives us a sense of achievement, a sense of value, a sense of, of, uh, of accomplishment when we use our energies to create. We're little creators, not just procreators for life. We're creators. We create buildings. We create artwork. We create gardens. We create farms. We create. We're creators. And when we exercise the, the, our abilities to create, to engage, to do, it, it helps us grow. It lifts us up. It is quite demoralizing and destructive to the integrity of a person to be treated by society in a way that says you're incapable. You can't create. You can't achieve. You can't do. You're incapable. You need a check from the government because you're disabled and you're incapable. It's destructive to the entire, for those who have abilities. So it's not destructive to people who are actually disabled. 
Okay? But for those who are not, it's destructive. And we should be working to help lift up and restore the image of that, which requires, again, wisdom. And it comes right back to design law. You can't get there by passing a rule. Rules are cookie cutter. It does not understand situation. Those quotes were all about understanding the circumstances in the situation, which requires we get to know people. And it's so much better for the Christian to pass laws to create social support networks run by the institution, the government, so I pay my taxes and I don't actually have to get involved. I don't have to actually meet people. I don't actually have to get my hands dirty. I am taking care of the, of the social justice in my community by paying my taxes and having a heartless agency do it. And I can feel good. And, and I'm going to feel so good about it, and I know it's so righteous, I'm going to make sure that everybody else in my society pays those taxes and, 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 and participates in that way as well. I'm going to force it. And I will tell you what I wrote in my blog this week is one of Satan's goals is to remove the loving, compassionate Christian and insert a heartless, soulless institution in its place. Lives are not changed by institutions. Lives are changed by people loving people. That's the gospel message. Love your neighbor as yourself. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for you and for Jesus, who you sent as our Savior to reveal the truth about you and to die to provide remedy and restoration for all who trust you. We ask now that your Spirit will be poured out to take the achievements of Christ, reproduce it in us, and we pray for the wisdom, and you promise that all who ask wisdom and and, and trust you will be given wisdom. So we ask for the wisdom of heaven, the discernment, to be able to differentiate your kingdom from the kingdoms of the world, that we will reject the imperialistic lies that have been told about you and embrace you as our creator and designer, participate in all that you've provided for us, be restored in righteousness and be lights in this world at this time in human history, and that you will open avenues for this end-time message to shine more brightly because there's so many people out there that really want a freeing message and it's not being shared with them. They're just getting the same thing, Lord. So we ask for platforms and people to come along to help us along and share this message. At this time, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.